And welcome to the UVM podcast, the place where we discuss all things related to utility vegetation management and the ways in which we can collectively mitigate or eliminate tree and power line conflicts. Nick, how are you doing today and who do we have as a guest? Hey Steve, I'm doing great, thanks. Today's guest is our mutual friend Rob Young, formerly forestry manager of Nova Scotia Power in Canada and now technical advisor to the research organisation SIATI and also executive director of the Registered Professional Foresters Association of Nova Scotia. As you know, Nick, when we began this podcast, we wanted to address a myriad of subjects, and one of them was to introduce our audience to the organizations who support us in the UVM industry. First organization we covered was the Utility Arborist Association, or UAA, and we also introduced the listeners to the Tulane Law School, UVMI. Today, we're going to talk about the UVM work at SIADI, which is the acronym for the Center for Energy Advancement Through Technological Innovation. They're headquartered in the town I was actually born in, Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and they have a standalone program focused purely on the UVM industry that is run by our guest today, Rob Young. Uh, Got his bio handy, Nick? I certainly do, Steve. So Rob graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Forestry from the University of New Brunswick and later acquired certificates in leadership development, strategic management, project management, and loss control leadership. Rob has been influential through partnering in and leading industry training and events to achieve state-of-the-art learning and a common peer-to-peer understanding. In 2016, he received the Utility Arborist Association Education Award. Rob spent over 25 years developing and leading integrated vegetation management programs on the transmission system, which is 5,500 kilometres, and the distribution system, 27,000 kilometres, of uh, lines at Nova Scotia Power. So, uh, yeah, just want to say a warm welcome to you, Rob. Uh, this is the first time we've had three Canadians on the show. I got my citizenship earlier this year and uh, appreciate you accepting me. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate that introduction. And hey, Steve, trust all as well. It's an absolute pleasure to join both of you as I've always enjoyed the conversations we've had over the years. Many congrats, Nick, on your citizenship. It's so great that you have sought to be part of the true North strong and free. I'm sure you won't mind getting updates on hockey at every level, minors to NHL. And if you haven't yet, you'll have to spark up an interest in curling, another great sport of ours. You mentioned that the show is comprised today for the first time with an all-Canadian cast. God save the Queen, as Steve would say. And well, since I'm happy to be part of a first time for just about anything, I'm glad to contribute at least to that milestone today. Well, thanks for that cultural lesson, Rob. Uh, But before we alienate our American listeners, maybe I should point out that while I truly love my Canadian roots, I'm also a U.S. Navy Vietnam era veteran living down here in California. I actually have dual citizenship. And for those of our listeners old enough to remember the 1960s and 70s, when I joined the military as a Canadian, there were actually a lot of Americans going up to Canada to avoid the draft. But I probably should get back on topic here. Rob, let me start off by asking you to give us an overview of SIATI in general. How big is it? Who are the members? And what types of things does SIATI do for the utility industry? Well, Steve, SIATI is a user-driven organization. So we bring together a universal knowledge of the industry that's essential to targeting and aiding key issues that affect all our members. So we're committed to providing impactful solutions. 
We leverage the benefits of our powerful network and technical expertise to meet the needs of power utilities all over the world. We harness innovation and empower collaboration to advance the industry through specialized interest groups. And those groups cover all areas involving power generation, transmission, and distribution. Our network includes more than 150 utilities from across the globe, and our vegetation management interest group is just one of 21 specialized groups. That sounds really good, Rob. Um, So let's now focus uh, a bit on your UVM-specific efforts. What types of topics does your group deal with? Strategically, Nick, we tend to group learning opportunities into four main focus areas. The first is strategic planning and program management, and then technology, equipment, and products, public and social opportunities, and lastly, environmental contribution. These groupings tend to capture everything that members bring forth as areas that they're most interested in. So we tend to cover something related to each strategic area throughout the year, whether webinar, project, or during our annual meetings. We'll also spend concentrated effort this year in specific areas such as program modeling, effective use of UAVs or drones, fire risk mitigation planning, and applications of satellite imagery to support work ID and quality assessment. Rob, I'm sure we'll touch on many of those topics today, but uh, first I'd like to know about how UVM folks can become involved with CIADI. Can you also talk about the UVM group and how it functions? Sure, Steve. Well, CIADI, like I said, is a member-based service, so power utilities are eligible to join simply by paying annual dues. The Vegetation Management Interest Group meets twice annually. It's great when we're in person, but of course, due to the pandemic, Everything's been online for the last couple of years. We also host technical webinars and benchmarking surveys. Members can get actively involved on the executive committee, which is our steering committee, and also participate in focused discussion areas of interest to better identify learning gaps. Where knowledge gaps arise within the group membership, we have the capacity to undertake projects and research studies on behalf of the membership, providing excellent leverage to all the members. So, Rob, uh, what types of projects and research are you currently doing for utility vegetation management? There are three projects that are currently in the hopper from last year, Nick. One is development of a best management practice for effectively communicating vegetation management programs, both within the company and with customers and the public at large. Another is an application comparison of LIDAR and FODAR, as well as our last project on the practical uses of satellite imagery. Project opportunities that are generating discussion this year include the effective applications of UAVs or drones, computer modeling for the purpose of building program budgets and fire risk mitigation, and as well, our interest in satellite imagery continues to grow. And are these findings available to the public? Most of the studies completed within CIADI are available only to those members of the group who sponsored the work. If anyone is interested in a specific study, though, we encourage them to reach out for a discussion about membership in that group. Rob, I think I did a webinar for CIADI back in uh, 2017, and I talked about UVM-related laws and regulations. In looking at your website earlier today, you've done a lot of those webinars for your members. Uh, Can you give us a review of some of the topics you've covered and how are they made available to your membership? Well, thanks again for your contribution back then, Steve. And yes, we have about five webinars each year, and members can view them at their leisure. All the webinars that the Vegetation Management Interest Group hosts 
are recorded and shared with the members through a web portal called MyCiati. They simply log in, and it's a great technical resource that members have access to. It includes a variety of recorded presentations like yours. It's sort of like a CIADI YouTube, if you will. Some of the topics covered in the recent past include program prioritization, optimization, conducting transmission inspections, drone use, utilization of satellite imagery, managing right-of-way for pollinators, effective communication of herbicide use, and indigenous relations opportunities. Again, we attempt to represent all of the strategic learning areas. However, we are focused on member interest. Often, we encourage a very interactive opportunity as we open the lines throughout the presentation to give the presenters an opportunity to also learn from the listeners and get instant feedback on what they're doing and perhaps create a good connection with other members that can share a helpful experience. While we often have members present their own experiences with the use of technology as well as program implementation, Steve, we also host consultants and suppliers to provide insight on products and opportunities for technology as well. We also had a joint webinar this past spring on the use of internal forces, and that allowed for two utility perspectives at the same time. That went very well. I think I got a follow-up on that. Uh, am I correct, Rob, in thinking your reference to internal forces means using utility employees rather than contracting the work out to uh, tree or UVM companies? Is that correct? And can you share any of those findings? Sure. Interesting enough for me, Steve, the utilities are finding that utilizing their own crews for completing certain workloads has both economic benefits and improved corporate representation. One utility worked closely with a local college to develop a two-year trades program and after purchasing equipment, undertook a pilot study to compare their costs to that of their contractors. That work is continuing, but they were very pleased with the results at that time. Wow. I'd like to learn more about that study. It seems rather counterintuitive to me. Also seems like a topic we should cover on a future episode, Nick. Rob, since your membership is made up of UVM folks from around the globe, what issues and opportunities or problems are you hearing about as being most important these days? Well, the one thing that I've realized over the years, Steve, is that the problems faced by any utility are rarely unique. Rather, they seem to transcend across the whole entire industry. One of the items that VEG programs are currently addressing is in regard to fire and weather-related risk mitigation, both in terms of the system condition on the landscape and the risk to the system. Given some events of the previous few years with the impacts of climate change, many are rethinking this new paradigm, even if they aren't currently being impacted by it. Also, the idea of having a comprehensive inventory and being supported by adequate budgets remains challenging. Compounded with the need to react to additional pressures. With respect to inventory development, the opportunities for data collection have expanded to satellite imagery and the greater accuracy of models and algorithms in support of predictive management. While technology remains to be an area that's a bit overwhelming, we are continuing to explore the best management approach for different situations especially in terms of using data for optimizing program implementation. A common opportunity that's on the minds of UVM folks is the idea of the right-of-way being an asset for ecological values. Whether it's making wise IVM choices for the protection or development of habitat, or establishing a third-party agreement, such as a candidate conservation agreement, these activities are good for the earth and establish an improved ethical connection with landowners, stakeholders, and regulators and even being leveraged corporately for meeting ESG metrics. 
No, interesting. Yeah, a quick uh, follow-up question on this, Rob. So I've often wondered whether it makes sense to have an adopter highway style program for rights of way. So, to, you know, to reduce the environmental impacts and push towards net zero, polluting companies could potentially purchase carbon credits created by utilities practicing IVM principles. And that would, uh, you know, help offset their costs of doing that. Have you heard of anyone exploring that concept? It's a great question, Nick. I have to admit up front, I'm no expert in the field of buying or selling carbon credits as a commodity. And while I think there are opportunities within the management of rights away for carbon offset, I also think it's complicated. If you consider your example of adopt a highway concept, and what I think you mean is that the right way is offered up to anyone interested in satisfying an alternative use on the land. While that sounds like a great idea for eliminating the need for ongoing management by the utility, you also have to consider the overall footprint on the land and not look at each option in isolation. So while there are many programs out there that are reducing the environmental impact, some alternative uses may actually require more intensive management. Therefore, while it looks good for the utility that they've reduced their involvement in managing the right-of-way, the overall objective of carbon offset may not have been met. In such cases, I think perhaps there needs to be another incentive of some kind, like ESG, for example, where some level of credit is assigned for species protection or something like that controlling invasive species or contributing to biodiversity. In 2004, I actually presented a paper at the Right-of-Way Symposium on planting large shrubs, in this case, Beckled Alder, on Right's-Way not only as part of IVM, but also for carbon sequestration. That particular shrub occurs naturally just about everywhere anyway and was compatible enough to thrive on any right-of-way, including distribution. Given offset credit worth at that time, we demonstrated that planting activity to be a great economic and public relations success story. The only issue actually was getting the regulator to recognize it as a tree, as only trees were being considered for sequestration because of their long lifespan. However, I think many woody species that are growing across our continent and that are nurtured on power line rights away could offer the opportunity for utility to discover the extent to which these areas are carbon sinks. So are there um, any other opportunities or problems you personally think need to be addressed in our industry? I know you've talked a lot about applying IVM practices to distribution lines in the past. I guess I'm asking for your own input on issues we need to talk about. Well, I often think about an ongoing issue for transmission and to some extent distribution, and that's providing adequate clearances and preventing tree fall-ins on lines with limited right-of-way easements. For this reason, many utilities are involved in right-of-way widening projects on both transmission and distribution. The space needed for power lines is and will continue to be at a premium. And with the demand for energy getting more complex, such as with the development of the electric cars, the replacement for our combustion engine, Moving reliable power over the grid to the customer is going to be even more dependent on successful vegetation management. So we either need different engineering or more space for improved clearances. Vegetation management both on and adjacent to the right-of-way will remain a critical determining factor to reliability. I'm also really excited about the opportunities for utilizing earth imagery from satellites to both assist with program planning, inspection, and storm response. While well, this area isn't fully explored yet, utilizing imagery that can be very current and quickly available, I think, is a valuable asset on either transmission or distribution to provide insights in developing risk profiles, vegetation inventories and categorization, and revitalization of old data as well. The algorithms just keep coming. 
for accurate species ID and change detection. Thinking more futuristic, I feel that utilizing smart grid technology could also play a large role in the development of management plans for distribution vegetation management. I think that more decisions about the way feeders or circuits are designed should be done in relation to the known right-of-way condition and with longer-term goals in mind, such as securing reliability and lowering long-term maintenance costs. What I mean, Nick, is we need an improved accounting for the long-term maintenance of the right-of-way in the planning stage and to deal with known circumstances up front in the capital spend stage, rather than the status quo where many times VM managers are dealing with those issues on the operating side of the business. It may even result in smaller generation platforms where power is closer to the customer, given that delivery over the grid may simply get too complicated and difficult to manage. Now, with respect to IVM on distribution, I've always been a proponent of ensuring that the most applicable control methods, or better, a sequence of treatments, be implemented to achieve a desired result. In many cases, distribution, situated in an urban interface, is restricted from management choices, often to aerial work and reestablishing clearances, perhaps tree removals at best. However, where it is less restrictive, as in the more rural areas, the elements of IVM and the development of sustainable right-of-way need to be considered under the same methodology as is embodied on transmission. I always felt that there are two basic measures that are fundamental to a distribution program. How much line length will never need to be managed, and how much can be converted to that state. Moving a proportional amount from one to the other should be a prominent program goal annually to reduce the overall maintenance dependency. While there are areas of inherent sustainability, such as pavement water, many other conditions can be placed on a management pathway from routine or cyclical management to a naturally sustainable state. Thanks, Anson. Uh, certainly some interesting views there. Thanks, Rob. Nick, before we go on with further questions, why don't we hear a word from our sponsor? This episode is sponsored by Live EO. Live EO offers the market-leading satellite-based vegetation management solution which helps vegetation managers to improve network reliability and safety. The software automatically generates grid-wide vegetation overviews from up-to-date satellite imagery and provides insights about tree location, height, species, and vitality. The system calculates the vegetation risk for each span and helps in budgeting and prioritizing cutback activities. Visit live-eo.com slash UVM to find out more and to schedule a free demo. Or simply send a message to info at live-eo.com. And welcome back. Nick, I think you were going to follow up on Rob's last response. Something I've been uh, thinking about and something I've mentioned before on this podcast is uh, you know, the, the concept of uh, smaller generation platforms or distributed energy resources is already starting to have an impact. I'm looking forward to the day when we have an Uber for energy where there's peer-to-peer trading that can be done over the local distribution network at the neighborhood level, uh, backed up by the reliability and security of the grid. Now, that could be a fantastic way to know the provenance of the, your electrical supply and would ultimately, of course, impact uh, people's uh, electricity supply choices. I believe, Rob, you've been a proponent of condition-based inspection regimes in the past. Can you, uh, for our listeners, provide a summary of the pros and cons of uh, cyclical programs versus uh, a condition-based regime um, and why you feel that uh, in many cases condition-based inspection is, uh, is a good bet? Well, Nick, it's true. I'm guilty of singing that tune. That condition-based management is a good bet. Yep. 
Perhaps for the reason I just provided for your last question. However, mostly because condition-based planning can lead to work plan optimization. What I've been a strong advocate for over the years is making sure that the right treatment is implemented in the right place at the right time. I think I may have spoken of prescriptive management as well in the past, which I think is similar enough to capture me on the condition-based management team. The difference here being that I've leaned toward the treatment threshold and the end goal for any vegetation unit as drivers for decision-making. Before I get any further, let me first say that any application of IVM, whether condition-based, cyclical, or predictive, the overall success measure is the conversion of the right-of-way from an incompatible to a compatible vegetative state. And then you maintain that state. The difference to consider here is the timing of planned work. In terms of cyclical, that time may be fixed for the entire line. The consequence of this approach is, in fact, the schedule. As if too early or too late, both could be inefficient in terms of cost and crew deployment. That is, if the site conditions and species differ across the landscape, which is often the case. Condition-based differs in comparison given that subsequent treatments should be premised on a forecasted or expected response from past management. This implies that only parts of any line right-of-way are visited in any one year, and it's possible for a site to remain idle from management for many years. Now, however, don't mistake what I just said to be a just-in-time approach, as while this is also a successful strategic view, there can be consequences related to both risk to the system and increased cost associated with deferred management. I should also note that when sustainable rights-of-way are managed on a cyclical basis to retain low densities of incompatibles at low cost, I actually term that as right-of-way tending, as the goals for sustainability have already been met. However, the principles of IVM still apply to maintain that state of compatibility. Otherwise, I think of it in terms of optimization or ensuring that treatment prescriptions are timed to ensure lowest-cost options for management are prioritized to reach a desired state. I just learned a new term, right-of-way tending. I'm inclined to like that. Uh, thanks for that, Rob. Uh, before I turn over to Nick for any last questions, last time we met in Nova Scotia, I seem to recall you telling me there was a Halifax law on the books that said criminals could not be forced to eat lobster more than three times a week. And I guess my questions are, is that law still on the books? And what do I need to do to get incarcerated next time I'm up there? <laughs> yeah, Steve, I hear, yeah, you've asked two questions. Is the law still on the books? Uh, I don't think so. And what do you need to do to get incarcerated in Halifax? Probably not very much. You could probably grab you for jaywalking if you like. Probably a good way to get a meal and keep your time and lock up to a minimum. Anyway, I, I knew you'd remember that little tidbit. Funny that you bring that up as, uh, as dumping day, which is the first day the fishers are allowed on the water to dump their traps, was just a week or so ago, and where the law existed. Because I believe the, the bylaw existed in the 1800s as lobsters were considered, and still are for that matter, bottom feeders. So the local lockup in the town of Yarmouth in our southwestern part of the province, I was told, was to limit the amount of lobsters fed to prisoners there to three days a week. It's funny how life is thought about the strength of marketing, eh? Lobsters went from trash to gourmet. Yeah, Rob, I think that law might exist in Maine. Uh, perhaps we need to get Tom Irwin from Central Maine Power on the show to uh, 
confirm or deny. I actually uh, recall seeing the lobsters at Nova Scotia Airport, and I was uh, somewhat tempted uh, at the time to uh, to take one home for my wife in BC. Um, but I thought, well, you know, maybe that's not the best idea. You know, what if it escapes on the uh, the aisle on the plane? Maybe that was shellfish of me. Uh. Mm. Yeah, that was uh, that wasn't the best, hey, Steve. Right. So, uh, yeah, before we call it a day, um, Rob, would you like to pass along any additional information about Seattle? You know, how can people get in touch with you and uh, find out more about your UVM activities? Well, I think we caught that uh, crusty ocean nugget you slipped in there, Nick. <laughs> Tom would be a great guest to have on the show. And, well, yeah, there is a Yarmouth in Maine. So maybe the law was there instead of here. Maybe we need to ask Tom about that. However, the best way to enjoy Atlantic lobster is straight out of the water. So you're going to have to come and consider bringing your wife out to our shore for a visit. And Steve can come along and we'll all go to jail. I mean, a fine restaurant together. With respect to Seattle, folks can contact us very easily by visiting our website, seattle.com, the World Wide Web, to find out more about our services, including more details on the Vegetation Management Interest Group. Well, Rob, on behalf of both Steve and I, we'd like to thank you for uh joining us today and uh, the insight that you've shared. I've certainly learned a lot and uh, hopefully our uh, listeners will have done as well. Indeed. Thanks, Rob. And looking forward to sharing more Halifax lobster dinners with you in the future. You can't wait to put you in jail when you get here, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) No, both of you, it was an absolute pleasure and an honor being your guest today. Thanks very much. Well, thanks, Rob. And uh, thanks again, Steve. So I'll end this episode with a message for our listeners. For those in the audience, we'd love to get feedback from you. We'd also welcome impact on future episodes. Feel free to send us an email at podcast.utilityvegetationmanagement.com and we'll make it happen. If you're enjoying listening to the show and the series that we've put out this year and you'd like to help us continue to grow it further, please consider subscribing to the podcast, rating it or sharing it with your friends and colleagues. That's it for today's episode. See you on the next one. Bye.